you can open up your, well, okay, let me, let me let you know that the, the screen back here is broken. Something happened. Somebody broke it. One of you, we're going to find out which one of you did it. Um, it doesn't work, so take out your Bibles if you have them. If you don't have a Bible, use your app on your phone. Download it. Be ready to follow along. There is a screen in the back. You can always turn around to look at the screen back there. Um, because there's two projectors, that one works, this one over here doesn't. Um, but we're just going to try to follow along here. So um, some of us are fasting today, as I said, as part of a three-month campaign. We're calling United on Mission. We're the third Sunday of the month. We're calling our church to fast. I think 36 people ended up joining today that signed up. Maybe more of you are doing it, and, and we're unaware. But 36 people, uh, as of this morning, joined in and uh, have been fasting all day. Uh, and we're going to be breaking it together while we receive communion at the end of service. Um, you, you know, we want to be a church that sends out people to reach unreached people who don't know about Jesus, to go to unreached people groups, nations, countries, ethnic groups, tribes have, who haven't heard about Jesus. We want to send out some of you there. We, we, we want to plant churches and campuses and, and reach new communities. We want to reach our neighbors and our loved ones, our family members. How many of you got family members here? Like, I wish they knew how much Jesus loved them. We want to see their hearts opened, their eyes opened, their minds opened to Jesus. Um, but it requires us to be united together, God's church to be united together and not get um, distracted by trivial differences, not get offended by trivial differences with each other. And so um, as we were, this was kind of a last minute thing to kind of do this third Sunday of the month fast. Um, and so leading up to today, I thought, well, I'm not going to preach on the passage from Exodus that I was planning on preaching on, right? We're doing this study through the book of Exodus, so I thought, I'm not going to do that one. I'm going to do something different about maybe unity or, you know, fasting, both. Um, but the more I studied that particular passage in that section of Exodus, the more I thought, wait a second, this is very fitting for this day. So we're going to stick to the plan and look at that passage in Exodus that we were going to look at. Um, let me give you the main kind of idea up front, and then it's going to take a little bit to get there, and the sermon is going to be shorter than normal, okay? So main point up front, it's going to be a windy road to get to that main point, and it's going to be a shorter sermon than, than normal, all right? So here, here, here it is. If you want to look at the back, the back wall there, if you want to look, unity for unity's sake is not God's goal, okay? So let me just... Get that out there. Unity for unity's sake is not God's goal. Expanding the presence of God throughout the world is his goal. That's his goal, is to expand his presence throughout the world. That's his goal. He wants us in on that mission. He wants us to partner with him on that mission. And our divisions with each other oppose that mission. Okay, that's kind of the main idea. Expanding his presence is his goal. He wants us in on that, but our divisions with each other gets in the way. It actually opposes his goal. So let's jump into the book of Exodus, Exodus chapter 25. We're going to be starting in verse 8, and we're going to read all the way down to verse 9. <laughs> Here's where we're at with the book of Exodus. God has stepped in and rescued this people of Israel from slavery in Egypt. He has led them through the wilderness and provided for them through miraculous ways. He has given them the law and commandments as a way of saying, this is how I want you to live. As my blessed people, he's given them a promise that he's going to uh, uh, secure victory over enemy nations in the promised land to which he's sending them. And then the last thing we saw 
was that this, he had this uh, um, covenant ceremony with them on Mount Sinai where he made promises to them and they committed to him and there was sacrifices and we talked about that and it was this, this, this special covenant ceremony. And now that God has made these promises to them, God's going to move in and dwell with them. God's going to live with them. God's, it's kind of like after a wedding, right? You make these vows after a wedding, a covenant ceremony, and then after the wedding comes what? The, the marriage, right? You, are you learning to live together as one flesh? Well, this is kind of the idea here. After that covenant ceremony that we talked about two weeks ago, now God is showing his people, okay, now here's how I'm going to dwell with you. Here's how I'm going to be present with you. In fact, the rest of the book of Exodus is about that. We're, we're going to be going through the rest of the book of Exodus on a faster pace than we have been. Uh, but that's what it's about. It's about God dwelling with the people of Israel. And so um, here's wh where we're going to see him give this uh, instructions to build something. So Exodus 25, verse 8, says this. He's talking to Moses. Then have them make a sanctuary for me, God says to Moses, and I will dwell among them, make this tabernacle and all its furnishings exactly like the pattern I will show you. Now, the word for tabernacle is miskan, and it's from the word to dwell. Uh, Seikan, I think, is how you pronounce it. Um, he's telling them he wants, to, he wants them to build this space, to build this construction uh, where his presence is going to meet earth. The presence of God, where heaven is going to meet earth, is this space, this construction called a tabernacle. And what God is saying here to Moses is that I want to restore what was lost in the very beginning in the Garden of Eden with the first human beings, Adam and Eve. God was dwelling with them in the beginning, and their job... Their job was to expand the presence of God in the Garden of Eden throughout the whole earth, throughout all of creation. He said to them, be fruitful and multiply and subdue the earth. That was their job. God's like, I'm dwelling with you here in the garden. Now I want you to expand this thing, this beautiful garden, throughout all of creation. Now they screwed it up. They sinned against God. They rebelled against him. They thought they could be their own gods. They thought, you know what? We don't need God if we eat this one piece of fruit. Our eyes will be open. We'll be like God. So they, they, they did it, and everything was fractured. And one of the consequences was that they were kicked out of the garden. They were kicked out of the presence of God. They lost that because God's being a, he's a holy God, and he could not have rebellious. I mean, they were guilty of treason, basically. They, you know, you don't, you don't let somebody guilty of treason living in your royal palace, right? So God said, you out. But God still loved humanity, and so he still wanted to be reunited with them. He wanted to dwell with them. So he put in place this plan of redemption. And we talked about this in week one of Exodus, all the way back in February. God said to Abraham, I'm going to create a nation through you, and through that nation the whole world's going to be blessed. I'm going to bring my shalom to the whole world through this nation of Israel. And so here we have, uh, here's a quote, let me sum it up here. There's a, there's a quote by a guy named J.T. English. I love this. He said this, the mission of God is the presence of God in all of creation. That's God's ultimate goal, his presence in all of creation. Creation got screwed up, but he ain't given up on it. The whole Bible is about God filling the earth with his presence. It's not about us believing the right things about him. He wants us to believe the right things about him so that 
so that we can enjoy his presence forever. That's the goal. So that we can be a people to expand his presence, enjoy his presence for all of eternity. That's what the Bible is about. And he has used different vehicles to dwell with his people, starting with this construction building called the tabernacle. And we're not going to cover it, but the rest of chapter 5 and chapter, 20, or chapter 25, 26, and into 27 are about the construction of this tabernacle and the details about it, like what, what goes into it. And it's tedious, and it can be boring. Just being honest with you, if you don't understand why all these details, what am I reading all this stuff for? But it's because, it's because, let's look at it again. I'm going to keep, it's not there. Let's look at it again. Have them make a sanctuary for me, and I will dwell among them. Make this tabernacle and all its furnishings exactly like the pattern I will show you. God wanted it to be exact. So that's why all the details. That's why Moses wrote out all the, It needed to be exactly like the pattern because that pattern reflected something greater. What God wanted them to build on earth was meant to reflect something greater. What was that? Well, later on in the New Testament, the writer of Hebrews tells us, in Hebrews 8.5, if you want to flip over to Hebrews 8.5, you don't have to, but if you want to, the writer of Hebrews said this. He's talking about the priests. They served at a sanctuary that is a copy and shadow of what is in heaven. So the tabernacle that was built by the Israelites was a shadow of what is in heaven. This is why Moses was warned when he was about to build the tabernacle. See to it that you make everything according to the pattern shown you on the mountain. It was meant to be a reflection of the throne of God in heaven. That's why God said to Moses, make sure it's exact. Because I want when people look at it to go, oh, some, that says something about heaven. That says something about the throne of God. Let me show you a diagram. If you want to turn around, definitely want to look at this one. It's not in your Bibles. There's a... Uh, diagram of the tabernacle from kind of the side view. It would be covered by a tent. This, this tabernacle, by the way, is a, um, it, it, was, it was a temporary dwelling. It, they would pick it up and move as the Israelites moved. Eventually, they would have the temple in Jerusalem. So this was kind of a precursor to the temple. Here it is from a bird's eye view diagram. There's a holy of holies all the way on the left with the Ark of the Covenant, altar of incense, table of showbread, so uh, Pastor Rigo, by the way, is going to do a class on this uh, later on during the season of Advent. We'll talk more about that later. But all of these things were, were detailed, and they were meant to be specific because they said something about the throne of God in heaven. And then uh, this precursor to the temple, the temple was then a precursor to something else. So God came to dwell with his people through the tabernacle first, then the temple, and then in a greater way through the person of Jesus. The person of Jesus. When God the Son came down, the, the Gospel of John says this. You could jump over to John 1.14 if you want now. The Gospel of John. Apostle John, he said this. The Word. He's talking about Jesus. The Word became flesh. We're basically doing a survey of the Bible today. Okay? We just got to track along. The Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. 
He came to make his dwelling. That word for uh, dwelling in Greek is skenoo. And guess what it means? To put up one's tabernacle. Set up tent. Set up camp. To abide. That's what Jesus said. He came to dwell with his people in a greater way than the tabernacle was able to do and the temple was able to do. He pitched his tent. Why? Because his goal, God's goal, has been since the beginning of time to extend his presence throughout the world, to extend his presence throughout all of creation. When Jesus went around healing and casting out demons, you know what he was doing? He was saying, bam, this is what the kingdom of heaven is like. It's breaking in now. This is the, that's why he announced the gospel of the kingdom. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. These miracles was the kingdom of heaven breaking into the present broken creation. And then Jesus said about himself, he said to some religious leaders, destroy this temple and I'll rebuild it in three days. And they're like, who does he think he is talking like that? But he was talking about his body. He was talking about his body. He's like, I'm the new temple. I'm the real temple. I'm the ultimate temple that was destroyed, crucified on a Roman cross. And then three days later, he came back from the grave, conquered death, started resurrection life, opened a door so that you and I, when we trust in him, can follow him into this resurrection life, this kingdom of heaven life. We get it now. And it lasts for all of eternity. Now then Jesus, after he rose from the dead, he ascended into heaven. But he promised to come back one day. And when he comes back, guess what's coming with him? All of heaven is coming back. All of heaven is coming back to earth in the ultimate sense. Skip over to Revelation 21. This is the end of the book. Of, or the, I'm sorry, the end of the Bible. Revelation 21, verses 2 and 3 I'm going to read from. The Apostle John said this. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. God's dwelling place is now among his people. That's God's ultimate goal, to dwell with his people in the ultimate way. That's the mission of God, to live with us, to dwell with us. That's what he's after. That's what he's doing. God with us. Amen. So it was the tabernacle first, then it was the temple, then it was the, the, the Jesus in flesh, and one day it's going to be all of heaven coming down with Jesus. In the ultimate sense, we're going to dwell with God. But now the question is, I hope this raises the question for you, but what about now? Jesus came, yes. He's coming back, yes. But what about in between? How does God dwell on the earth now? How does he do that now? The tabernacle, the temple, Jesus is no longer in flesh. He has yet to return with heaven following in his trail. How does he dwell with God now? I'm glad you asked that question. Ephesians chapter 2 is where we're going to end. Flip over to Ephesians chapter 2. We're going to look at verse 19. Jesus had said to his disciples, 
right before he ascended into heaven, he said to his disciples, I'm going to give you my spirit. And then you're going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Samaria, Judea, and the ends of the earth. You are going to represent my kingdom starting in your homeland, but it's going to spread to the whole world. And then Paul said in Ephesians chapter 2, starting in verse 19, Consequently, you, so those of you who have trusted in Jesus, as a result of your faith in him, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. Verse 21. In him the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him you two are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. So those who have trusted in Jesus, first he said they become part of God's household, right? Adopted into his family. You were strangers. You're foreigners. And now you've been adopted by your faith in Jesus into this household. But then he switches metaphors from household to temple. You see that? You were part of his household, and now you're also being built together into a temple, the new temple, God's temple. And in him, you two are being built together to become a what? A dwelling. A dwelling where God can dwell by his spirit. You see that in verse 22? Yeah? If you don't have a Bible, you can look at the screen behind you. You can turn your head. You can do that. It's allowed. It's us. We are how God is dwelling on the earth now. You and I. But it's not you and I as individuals. That's not what Paul's talking about here. He's talking about us together. All of us together. Those of us in person, those of you online, all of us together is how God dwells on the earth right now. God's goal, his mission is his presence being extended through the earth. And the way he's doing it is you and I right now. That's, that's this season of human history, how God chooses to do it. So what that means is that when the world sees the church, when the world sees us corporately, it should see and sense the presence of Jesus. That's what it should sense. When it thinks about that church of Jesus, they might not agree with our beliefs. They might think, man, they believe some wacky stuff. But there's something about them that I just am attracted to. Now, you and I live in the same world together, and so we know that that's not always the case. Too often, in fact, that's not the case. That's not what the world sees. They don't sense the presence of God and there's a myriad of reasons for that. That could be a whole series that we do. But one of the reasons, one of the reasons why we don't properly, effectively represent the presence of God in the world is our divisions with each other. In our marriages, in our families, in our church communities, the things we fight over, things we disagree over, the things we form little cliques over, hinders God from doing what he wants to do in the world because you and I, as his body, as his household, as his temple, are his, is his chosen means, his chosen vehicle right now. You know who Paul was writing to here, by the way, in, in Ephesians chapter 2? He, he, he's writing to Jews and Gentiles who have been part of this, this same church, who are having a little bit of a tension with each other. 
Jews and Gentiles, they had walls. Now, if you remember the diagram that I showed you briefly, there was, there was, there was divisions, the Holy of Holies, and, 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 and there was a courtyard. Like, there was divisions between uh, what the priests could do and the rest of Israel could do, and men and women, and then there was Gentiles on the outer courts. Um, and those, those divisions were not just physical in nature. Man, there was cultural divisions, ethnic divisions, racial divisions, political divisions. All kinds of divisions. And so in the city of Ephesus, if a Jewish person trusted in Jesus, and then a Gentile, a non-Jew, a Greek, trusted in Jesus, all of a sudden they'd be like, wait a second. That's cool that he trusts in Jesus, but how about he do it over there? How about I have my church over here with the Jews, and they do the Gentile thing over there? Because there was tension. They lived differently. They thought about things differently. And then all of a sudden... They're putting put together in the same house church, having to work things out. And so Paul is writing to them, reminding them that you guys together are the temple of God. You're being built together. Look back at verse 22. You are being built together. That phrase, built together, has the idea of different parts being formed together to, 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 to construct something new. So Paul is saying you Jews are being formed together like a, like a, like a, you know, like a pipe connected to another, you know, uh, pipe, which is the Gentiles. You're being put together to form a new construction. That's what God is doing with you. He's forming something brand new despite your differences. Despite your differences. Yeah. So if a Jew trusted in Jesus and a Gentile trusted in Jesus, they're being put together to form a new temple. Look back at verse 14. The verses leading up to that section, Paul reminded them exactly of what happened. Verse 14, Paul said this, He himself is our peace, that's Jesus, is our peace. He has made the two groups, Jews and Gentiles, one, and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity, one new humanity out of two, thus making peace, and in one body reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. Oh, what a phrase, huh? He put to death their hostility. Jesus put it to death. Oh, they might try to revive it from time to time, but Jesus put it to death, and Paul's reminding them of that. What Jesus put to death, don't you guys try to revive Right? What Jesus has put to death, don't, don't, make a, don't make a big deal out of anymore. He tore down the wall of hostility. That doesn't mean they couldn't disagree over things and discuss them. They had to. They had to discuss. What are we going to do about eating pork? Right? What are we going to do about it? What are you going to do about circumcision? Do you make the Gentiles get circumcised? Like, what do you do? If a Jewish person's at the Gentiles' house and they're serving pork, what do you do? Do you make a big deal out of it? What do you do? And the idea that we get from the New Testament, like if I was the pastor of that, that you know, a Jew and Gentile having that issue, I'd tell the Jewish person, hey, if, you're, if they serve you pork, why don't you eat it? You know, God blessed all food. It's, 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 you're under a new covenant. But if I was talking to the Gentile, I'd be like, hey, do you have to serve pork? Do you have to? Right? And both of them would be like, yo, make a policy. Make a policy so that we all know what to do. No. No policy. You don't get a policy. You don't get a policy with pork. 
You, you sacrifice, you make, you sacrifice your personal preferences and your rights and you love each other because it ain't about the pork anymore. Either way. And you and I, right, we sometimes make big deals out of things we shouldn't make big deals out of. Don't we? In our marriages, in our families, in our friendships, in our church communities, we make a big deal out of things we shouldn't make a big deal out of because we forget that Jesus' blood has put to death our hostility. He tore down that wall so that he could make a new humanity. There is two two humanities now. There's old humanity who belongs to the old kingdom of the world, who has not been born again by God's spirit, and there's those who have. Those are the two humanities. That's it. That's what there is. His blood is thicker than every other allegiance we have, including family blood, by the way. Your biological blood, Jesus' blood is thicker than that, which means that if, um, if I have a family member who rejects Jesus, I'm more united to a, uh, an Arab living in Pakistan than I am to my family member who I grew up with who's rejecting Jesus as Savior. Now, easy to say amen to that one, Christians. How about this one? Those of you who are followers of Jesus and vote Republican are more united to Democrats in here who are followers of Jesus than your Republican friends who reject Jesus. Oh, snap. Oh, snap. Do we act like it, though? Do we live like it? (laughs) Thanks, Steve. Jesus' blood purchased our unity. Remember all the details of that tabernacle? Remember all the details? All that, you know, we talked about that. If you look at chapter 25, 26, 27, it has all these details. That God said you want to follow these details because they're a picture and a reflection of something going on in heaven, right? The throne of God in heaven. Well, right now, you and I are that reflection of heaven. When the world looks at us, that's what it should see. The, it, we are that reflection of heaven. So we've got to be exactly according to the pattern that God has laid out for us in his word. We've got to live according to that pattern. That means we've got to make things that are important to God important to us. And things that we don't see that are a big deal to God, maybe we don't make a big deal out of them. And oh man, do we need discernment with that one? Yes, we need wisdom. We need to be discipled less from sources out in the world and be studying God's word to go, God, what breaks your heart? I want my heart to break for that. And the things that don't break your heart help me to care a lot less about. Because the divisions between us, when we make mountains out of molehills, when we talk recklessly about each other, when we gossip about each other, slander each other, when we, when we even, even, listen, there are times when we got to draw the line. There are sin issues that need to be called out for sure whether it's in marriages and families and in church community, that, that has to happen. But even when we do that, it has to be done in a way that's filled with grace, where we're not labeling each other according to those sins. We're not labeling each other according to our worst moments. That's right. <laughs> so to sum up, to reach, it's all good. You're excited, man. <laughs> to reach the nations with the presence of God. To reach friends and family members who don't know Jesus, they need to see the true temple of God on display in the world, and that's you and I. That's you and I. That's you and I. So here's what I'm going to do. We're going we're gonna to end this way. We're going to call the band up. Before we receive communion, I'm going to walk us through three questions to reflect on. And please don't get offended by these questions. Please don't get offended by these questions. We've got, we got bigger problems if you do. 
Just honestly, ask God. God, show me, show me. Three questions. You can turn and look at them on the screen behind you, or you can just listen. You can write them down. But, I mean, hmm. before we receive communion together, before we uh, sing a song about Jesus as our cornerstone, let's just ask, ask ourselves these questions. Remember, the mission of God is the presence of God in all of creation. And the world's picture of heaven is dependent on our unity. It's dependent on the unity of the church. So here's three questions to consider. Number one, whatever is causing division with someone, is it that important? This is between you and the Lord. Ask him, is it that important? If it's affecting a relationship with a spouse, you guys are always arguing about the same thing. It keeps coming up, it keeps coming up. It's a family member, it keeps coming up. It's somebody in our church, it's the church as a whole. It keeps coming up, it's something you're always talking about. Is it, really that important. I'm not saying yes or no. I don't know. I don't know what it is. Yes, some things are worth drawing a line in the sand with. Some things are not. If Jesus was to return today, if, if you were going to stand in the presence of Jesus, would he say, hey, thank you so much for making a big deal out of that one. Thank you so much. That was one I care about. Thank you for doing that. Or would Jesus be like, really? Really? You read my word and you walked away thinking that that's going to matter for all eternity? Winning that argument is going to matter for all eternity? I don't know. In early in the nation's history, there was abolitionists in the church who stood up against slavery and it did cause division in congregations. And I think that one was worth drawing a line in the sand over. So I, I, it's not my place to say what it is or isn't for you, but you need to ask God that. Sincerely ask God. So that's the first one. Just take a moment right now. Take a moment, ask the Lord. And be careful what you label a justice issue. Right? There's matters of justice and right and wrong and morality in Scripture that we are to take a stand on. But we need to read the Bible and then walk away going, oh, that, that's something God cares about. And too often we do the opposite. We figure out what ticks us off and then we look for a Bible verse to tack onto it and go, ah, see, God cares about that too. It's like a proof texting kind of thing. I mean, we live in a time when people make justice issues out of everything. And, 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 and so we feel justified in making a big deal. You could, you, you, you could not show up for work for a month act surprised that your boss fires you and call it oppression. That's what we see today, right? So just be careful what you call a justice issue and, and stand out. Just really seek God. Go, God, does this really matter to you? Does this really matter to you? Do you really want me to continue to nag my spouse about this one? I don't know. I don't know. Lord, show us. Show us. We want to be your temple. Now, if the answer is no, if it's not that important, then, 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 then it's simple. Repent. God, I'm sorry. I'm sorry for making a big deal out of it. Help me not to make such a big deal out of this. But let's say the answer is yes. Let's say the answer is yes. 
It is important. Then we'll move to number two. Assuming that the thing you're fighting for truly is important to God, are you fighting the way he wants you to fight? Like, is Jesus actually leading you to try to make a change in someone's heart or make a change out in the world in the way that you're going about it? Again, if you were to stand in the presence of Jesus right now, would he say, thank you for fighting the way I led you to fight? Or would he be like, really? You really thought that was going to fix things. You really thought that was going to make a difference. You really thought that was going to win over hearts on that one by doing it that way. Good cause, bad strategy. You fought for something I care about, but you did it in a self-righteous, judgmental way. I don't know the answer to that one either. Take a moment. finally well let's say the answer to that one is no simple you repent god i'm sorry <laughs> help me but even if the answer is yes then then we move on to number three assuming you're fighting the right battle assuming you're doing it in the right way while you're waiting for things to change while you're waiting for your spouse to change while you're waiting for other people to get it you know the misinformed people out there they need to get it while you're waiting for that to happen can you rejoice in God's goodness in the meantime? Can you trust him and make much of Jesus in the meantime as if he is still on the throne? As if he is the ruler, the king that you've pledged your allegiance to. As if he truly is causing all things to work together for the good of those who love him. Can you rejoice in that? thankful still while you're waiting in the meantime. And if the answer is no, then you repent. I'm sorry, Jesus. I've been walking around all discouraged and depressed, looking at the circumstances eyes haven't been fixed on you. Let's stand. We're going to sing one song together before we receive communion. But during the song, if you need a communion uh, packet, just put your hand up and the ushers will put it in your hand. Everybody should have gotten one. And at the end of this song, we will receive this together. But what we're going to do first is what that last question alluded to, we are going to rejoice in God's goodness. We're going to rejoice that Jesus is our cornerstone, that he's holding us together. He's keeping his temple, you and I, together. One body, one body. Let's, let's sing.